Well, welcome back to Winter Equip. I realize it is dark and cold and, I don't know, maybe raining. It was raining last time I went outside. But I'm glad that you are here. I hope you're here because you're healthy and feeling okay. I recognize there's probably quite a few people at home that are joining us online. I know there are numerous families in our church, and it'll be something we can pray for here in a moment. Numerous families in our church that uh, either the whole family is sick or individual members of the family are sick or have been exposed to this recent spike and strain of the coronavirus. And so hopefully, like I said on Sunday, we will persevere over the next few weeks um, as, uh, as we manage this spike as we have the other ones. And maybe the Lord will see fit that this will be the end of it, right? So if you're feeling poorly, you know, get tested, stay home, do something like that. And uh, we're all, we're all going to make it through. But we're grateful for the technology. And so welcome to those that are joining us on one of our streaming platforms. So let me, uh, let me open us in a word of prayer. And then I'm going to introduce this, uh, this, 12 week, this next 12 weeks for us. Father, I thank you that we can be back together gathering midweek. Uh, here at church. I'm uh, grateful for a break at, at times like uh, the holidays, but uh, I always uh, am kind of longing in my heart after a week or two to get back to teaching on Wednesday nights and studying your word together with faithful saints. And I'm, I'm so grateful um, for the opportunity to teach these men and women and for us to think well together uh, about your word and its impact in our lives as we equip the saints for the work of ministry. God, we do pray for those in our church and in our community who are unwell right now, um, many who uh, have been exposed to this, the latest round of, of this virus, uh, others who have it or members of their family have it. And God, we just pray that you would bring an end to this, that um, we're, we're grateful, God, that it seems, at least if for, for most people, this is not as severe as it was in the last couple of years, but we also recognize that for some it is. And so, God, would you bring an end to this? Um, and um, we long for the day, God, where there is no more sickness. And we know that there is a, a future hope of that in Jesus. And um, so, Father, we pray for those who are maybe joining us now because they can't be in public, and we look forward to having them back uh, very soon. We pray for those who are with our students and our children and preschoolers, many who are filling in because others are sick who would be volunteering in those areas regularly on Wednesday. God, would you uh, bless our family ministry as uh, they teach the next generation about what it means to follow Jesus to love him and to serve you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we're back for another semester. This is going to be a 12-week uh, series. So it's going to take us um, through um, pretty much all of January, February, and March. There'll be a couple of weeks in there where we won't be in this series um, where we will have uh, a prayer gathering in a few weeks and a uh, possibility of, of uh, somebody else coming in and teaching. But uh, when I'm here and when I'm uh, the one teaching, this is, this is going to be our series. We're calling this the five solas. This is the foundation of the Reformation and why they still matter today. And, and I really want to deal with both sides of that subject over the next uh, three months is what are the five solas, and we're going to deal with some doctrine, some theology uh, over over the next twelve weeks. But also, why does that matter? I want to ask that question about each of the five doctrinal points that we're going to discuss. Uh, why did it matter during the Reformation? I think that's an important question. Why why was this something that the reformers focused on? And why is that still something that is reforming us today, that, that we are still, we are always reforming. We are always going back to God's word and asking questions, critical questions about what it is we as the church of God believe and what it is that God would have us to do and asking questions like, are the things that we believe and the things that we do, are, do we believe them and do them because we've always done them? always believed them, been told to believe them, been told to do them, 
or because the Bible tells us that we are supposed to believe them and supposed to do them. So the Reformation isn't just a period of time in the mid-1500s. The Reformation is still ongoing. We should always be reforming. And I thought that was going to be an interesting uh, topic for us to deal with. One of the reasons that I wanted to, to do this series, and I, I try to always, for those that maybe haven't been here on a Wednesday night with me, I try to introduce my Wednesday night s- series in, a, in, a, in the first week as kind of a, uh, an introduction lesson. And, and one of the things I always like to address is, is the why. Like, wh- why now? Why, do, why talk about this with the church? And one of the reasons um, that, that I kind of l- leaned into this is coming out of um, last year, we taught, I taught several series on Wednesday night last year, but the two longest ones was this time last year, I was teaching a worldview series. And then in the spring, in the fall, I taught kind of a companion series to that. And it was the gospel for all. It was basically taking those same worldviews that we talked about in the biblical worldview series and thinking about how do we share the gospel with people with conflicting worldviews, with varying worldviews, people in our, in our culture that may think differently than us and in our world that think differently than us. How do we invade the darkness with the gospel of Jesus as, as, as we meet and, and get to know people of, of, different, of different faiths or different worldviews? Um, and in discussing those, we spent some time, particularly in the worldview um, series, thinking historically some about the progression of history. And there were times that I would mention the Reformation. There were times I talked about the Reformation. And there are individual times, so I'm, I'm always, I get engaged a lot with people over things that I teach on Wednesday nights. I actually get as much feedback on things I teach on Wednesday nights as I do the things I, that I preach on Sunday mornings. Um, and what I found was there, there is, maybe not for everybody, but there is at least somewhat of a uh, gap in our understanding of what happened that, that not just historically, but doctrinally what happened 500 years ago and why what happened 500 years ago still matters today. Um, We tend to be very myopic when we think about uh, our own Christianity, meaning we think that, and this this is human nature, okay? So this isn't an indictment of our church or any church, really. It's, it's more because we're humans approaching a, a historic subject, but we tend to be very myopic, meaning we focus on what's happening right here and right now in our own backyard. And we tend to think that the way Christianity exists now is the way that it has always existed. Uh, or we, we tend to think that the way that we function as a church, particularly if you've been at this church for a long time, maybe you'll think the way that we function as a church is the way that everybody functions as a church or the things that we believe and that we hold to be true, not just um, uh, the things that we believe and hold to be true are, are the things that all Christians believe and, and hold to be true. <clears throat> and, and that's not the case, right? We need to have a bigger picture. We need to really think more critically about ourselves uh, because again, we're always supposed to be reforming and to, to think, to take a step back and take a larger view and to ask why do we believe the things that we do and really what are the foundations of those things that we uh, believe are, are going to be really helpful. This is somewhat similar to what I did, I guess, maybe three years ago when I taught on Baptist distinctives. This is going to have a different flair to it. It's going to have a much more doctrinal flair to it than that. But I kind of approach that from the same perspective is it is helpful for us. I think a growth point for us as Christians to not just think about what do I believe now and why does that matter now, but what have generations past believed? And how has what the generations past believed shaped what I believe now um, and what I'm believing in the future, what we as a church are, are going forward pro- uh, professing uh, as, as our faith and where, where we find foundation, the foundation of that. So uh, that's, that's really kind of what led to this led to this series. This series is going to, for those of you that like, and I know my Wednesday night crowd, uh, at least my in-person Wednesday night crowd, um, tends to like some of the history bits. Some of you don't so much. I'm going to talk history about every other week, okay? Um, and, and about every other week, there's going to be a portion of what I do that's going to be historical, like why it mattered for the Reformation. And then it's also going to be present tense, why it matters, and future tense, why it matters and why it continues to matter. 
And so as we approach through these five solas, these five kind of core statements that fueled the Reformation, even though they weren't really codified until the early 1900s, um, and I'm going to get into that in a second. Uh, but these, these ideas really what fueled the Protestant Reformation 500 years ago. And um, so, so we'll spend two weeks on each one, one week really kind of looking at the doctrine and one week looking at the historic and present uh, impact of the doctrine on the historic church and on, and on our church and then on our future and how we need to constantly look at, at reforming. So the five solas, because some of you look at that and you're like, five solas. Maybe you're here because you're just like, I have no idea what that means. Uh, maybe you Googled it before it came or you looked at some of the, some of the equip books in the equip center. Um, so the five solas of the Reformation, sola means only or alone, all right? And it's Latin. And that's the idea is that there are five alones that were the defining characteristics of the Protestant Reformation. And really they stand in contrast to what was the dominant teaching of the day. And that's kind of what I'm gonna spend maybe half of our time on today is thinking about what happened during the Protestant Reformation and what was the dominant teaching and what ended up being the codified teaching of the day in what was known as the Council of Trent, that, uh, that the reformers were, were seeking to influence and, and then why these statements, these alone, these sola statements became uh, defining characteristics of the movement. So for those of you that are just like, well, I've never heard of this. I don't know what these, is, what these are. From the outset, I want to tell you what they are, even though I'm not really going to deal with any of them today. Today is going to be a lot of foundational work, okay? So here are the five, right? It's um, scripture alone, the Bible alone. You could say it like that, right? It's grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone, and God's glory alone. Those, those are the five solas. Scripture, grace, faith, Christ, and God's glory. Now, there are books in the Equip Center, five of them, one each for each of the five solas. My intention is not, unless you're just really desiring to, my intention, my intention isn't necessarily that you're going to go and buy all five of those, even though they're a great deal. They're cheaper than you could buy them individually. We bought them as a big set. And so because we, and we sell them in the Equip Center, well, we don't sell them in the Equip Center. We ask for, we make a suggested donation for them in the Equip Center. That's how we don't pay sales tax, um, is we ask for a suggested donation for the books. And it's cheaper than what you could actually buy them for if you went to Amazon, right? So $10 a book out there's a really, really good uh, suggested donation because you can't buy them for that. <clears throat> and if you'll, uh, but, but there's one book on each one of those and those books actually progress through the subject in the same way that I'm going to teach through it. It talks about the doctrine, talks about the historical significance of the doctrine, and then it talks about the, the present modern uh, significance of the doctrine. And so I, obviously there's, they're fairly lengthy books and I'm only spending two weeks on each one. So the reason I wanted to make the books available in the Equip Center is because there's going to be a lot that I'm not going to be able to cover that if, as I'm teaching through this, you think, oh, that really piques my interest. I'd like to know more about this. Or we hit a spot in your own knowledge and understanding and you're like, wow, I never really even thought about that. That's why the books are in the Equip Center is we want to be able to to, to give you additional reading because for me to actually teach everything that would be in all those books, I mean, it would be, it'd be a lot longer than, than just a 12 week series. And so we want to be able to keep moving through that. So uh, those are out there. So scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Jesus alone, glory of God alone. And so, okay, but, but our, our, what was happening? And this is really the question, right? Like, why are we saying those things alone um, and, and the reason that this, this, these rallying cries of alone, sola, uh, began to be made and, and claimed during the Reformation was a direct response to what was being taught by uh, the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church was the church. It wasn't the only church, but people talk about, you know, before the Reformation, there was only thing that existed with the Roman Catholics. Well, that's not true at all. There was uh, a schism of the Roman Catholic Church, a divide of the Roman Catholic Church 
500 years even before this, um, and the Eastern world, right, what is known as Eastern Orthodox, still even to this day, um, existed apart from the Catholic Church. So the Reformation wasn't the first split from the Catholic Church, and the Catholic Church didn't officially even exist until uh, the fourth century. And so you had, you had churches, and you had varying ways of thinking about churches uh, in, in what's known as the early church period. And then the Catholics kind of dominated for about a thousand years with, with one split in there and up until about 500 years ago. And so when, when we think about these alones, we're really thinking about them in contrast to something else. So it's not just about it being scripture alone, but it is scripture alone instead of tradition, because that's what the Catholic church was holding to. They were holding to scripture and tradition. So the reformers were saying not scripture and tradition. They were saying scripture alone. We take grace. It wasn't just about it being about grace alone. It was about the Roman Catholic church teaching that, it, that justification came by grace and merit, that there were some people that deserved God's grace more than others, right? So they were saying grace and merit, and the reformers were saying, no, grace alone. Same with faith, that's right? So the, it's not just the reformers were screaming into the night, faith alone, then, and there was nothing they were addressing. They were addressing the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church that justification was by faith and works. And so the reformers were saying, no, it's not faith and works, it's faith alone, um, the Catholic Church was saying that we not only needed Jesus, who is our high priest, as the mediator between God and man, but that we needed other, we needed the, the ordained priesthood that would stand between in confession and in the sacraments between God and man. And the reformers were saying, no, we need Jesus over the priesthood. And then there was the glory of God alone. And this was the one that a lot of people it confuses a lot of people. And you say, well, isn't, wouldn't everybody have understood that what God is doing for the glory of God alone? We say, well, you would, you would think so, but that wasn't the case, particularly, um, particularly during this period, coming out of the medieval period, a lot of glory was given in veneration to, um, to other Bible figures like Mary, like some of the apostles, and then as well as, as, um, canonized saints of church history and that they were actually credited for the salvation of people, not just God. And so the reformers are saying, no, wait, it's God alone, the glory of God alone that we are saved. So as, you, as I kind of progress through this, here's, here's what you, I think, should see. The central focus, right? If you were to boil the Reformation, there was a lot going on in the Reformation and we're not going to be able to talk about all of it. Uh, in one week, we would be able to talk about it all in 12 weeks. Um, but if you boil everything about the Reformation down to kind of one central point of contention, it's this. What justifies a man with God? That, that's the central question that was being dealt with in the 1500s. And it is still, by the way, the central point of contention between Protestant denominations who followed the Reformation and the, the still existing Roman Catholic Church is what is it that justifies a person, not just men, men and women, what justifies men and women in the eyes of God? And so what the Reformers ultimately said, even though, again, it, it takes some time and you have to put some pieces of the puzzle together, but what the Reformers ultimately said was five things that we're going to base our understanding of justification on scripture alone, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus alone, for the glory of God alone. So the alone speak to the work of justification, the work of salvation, what it is that makes us right with God. So to lay that foundation today, I wanna delve a little bit into the history and then I'm gonna delve a little bit into the doctrine of justification. So I'm not going to teach on these alones. We'll start that next week. I'm gonna, I'm gonna do them in that order, by the way. We're gonna do the word of God, the scripture alone. So if you wanna kind of read ahead, for those of you that like to do that, you could get that book and that's the one that I'm gonna deal with uh, starting next week for the next two weeks. But I want us today to kind of lay that foundation, think historically, and then think doctrinally about justification to ensure that we have a firm foundation of 
when this took place, why it took place, and what is it about justification, even what is justification, because it's possible that you're in here and you think, well, I don't really know what that word means. I've read that word in the Bible before, for a preacher say that word. And so I want you to be able to leave here today and saying, I, I at least have a you know, rudimentary understanding of what that word means and, and when that happened in my life. So let's just think historically for a few minutes about the Protestant Reformation. So if we trace the Protestant Reformation back to one figure, who do we trace it back to? Martin Luther, right? Now, <clears throat> Luther wasn't it, right? There were reformers. Um, uh, Wycliffe was a reformer before uh, Luther. There were certain other, uh, certainly other contemporary reformers uh, as a part of uh, that movement. But if, if we trace it all the way back, right, in, in our minds, because it, it, it's helpful for us to, um, w- when we think about big pieces of history, whether it's church history or anything else, right? We tend to forget that there's usually lots and lots of people and lots and lots of circumstances, you know, and, and we tend to, to boil it all down to one main character, almost like it's a movie in our minds. And that's what we kind of do with the Reformation and, and think of, of Martin Luther doing what? On October 31st, um, uh, 1517, doing what? Nailing the 95 theses to right, the, to the door, right? And it, there's a, there is, it, on the 500th anniversary of this, um, there were, there was several events that took place. One of them, I believe was at Southern Seminary, Southern the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, several preachers came and preached on this, on this subject. And Mark Dever was pastor in, in DC, was one of them. And Dever talks about that event, you know, and how in our minds in that event, and Dever does a much better job with this than I do, but uh, he, you know, in our minds, like Luther, you know, is prepared and it's like he knows what he's doing, you know, and he knows he's about to change the course of history. And he goes and he nails the 95 theses to the door and, and angels sing and, you know, it, it, the whole place lights up and there's bells and it really wasn't that way at all. Um, Luther was a scholar. Okay. Um, he, and he was looking for, he was looking for reformation within the church, but he was not looking to leave the Catholic church by any stretch. Luther was looking to ask some questions. And that's really what the 95 theses were. It was, it was 95 questions that, that Luther had, that he was introducing a discussion. And we know that it was a scholarly discussion that Luther was interested in because of the language that he wrote the original work in. He wrote it in Latin and he he was in Germany. Nobody knew Latin. The only people that knew Latin were scholars, the priesthood, the, the, the bishops. These were the only people that knew Latin. And so this really wasn't a for the people movement in 1517. And in truth, if Luther had left it at that, now again, we're, we're presupposing that God wasn't working in this, but let's just look at it as a historical event for a moment. If Luther had just left it at that and all it ever was was scholarly people debating uh, reforms within the church, some of those reforms may have shown up in the church, but we may never ended up with the Protestant Reformation. But something happened the next year that really sparked the flame, okay? Luther ended up really kind of drawing the attention of a lot of people, a lot of scholars, And they began to address what he was writing in 1518. So within the next, within several months, you know, they didn't have the internet. It took a little while. And uh, people began to address it and people began to, to, to offer critiques of his critique of the church. And Luther responds. And this time Luther responds in mid 1518, Luther responds with a published work in German. Now, here's what that did. That made it accessible to all of the people. So it really wasn't the 95 Theses that sparked the Protestant Reformation because that was a scholarly debate. What sparked the Protestant Reformation was Luther's response to his critics, which he intentionally published in a language that all of the people could could read because he wasn't making very much headway with the priesthood. But he got the people in Germany behind him. So by the time, and again, you know, history kind of moved slow back then, but by the time you get to um, 1520, 
Luther's in Germany. Word has made it to Rome that there's this upstart priest in Germany who's uh, really questioning some distinct teachings of the church. And the Pope at that time was, was called Leo X. And Leo X accused Luther of 41 cases of heresy. It was in it was what is known as a papal bull, right? This is a, a statement from a Pope. It's a really important piece of literature. Um, and the, the, the Pope at that time accuses um, Luther of 41 cases. Now there was 95 points, but there were 41 that the, the, the Pope was like, that's heresy. Um, and said, you have 60 days to recant, which gave him right up until the very beginning of uh, 1521. Luther doesn't recant. And so the Pope issues another decree excommunicating Martin Luther from uh, the church. So that's what's happening on the on the church side, right? But if, you're, if you remember back to history, um, and the history maybe you learned as a kid, um, back in that time, the church and the state were intricately tied with one another, right? And at that time, you had the Pope, but you also had the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, right? And this had arisen to be such a big deal that now Luther had developed such a following over the course of this two to three year period and his teachings were being embraced by so many people that the Pope has now excommunicated him, but the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, who was uh, Charles IX in 1521, the same year, like about three weeks later after, after Luther is excommunicated from the church, um, uh, Charles IX calls what was known as the Diet of Worms. It was a meeting, and he's going to get everybody together, and he gets everybody together, and calls Luther and Luther shows up and this is where Luther makes his famous here I stand I can do no other speech right at that point Luther's already been kicked out of the church but he recognizes like his life's on the line and and it, it truly is on the line and there are people that end up protecting him they take him to other places they hide him out and so there's there's kind of more to that story that we won't go through here but you would think that in that moment because of how well Luther was was received particularly in places like Germany, because he was in Germany, in Germany, that, that the church would have wanted to deal with it. They figured, they kind of thought it was done with, right? We've removed the heretic. The same thing they had done with, with Wycliffe a generation before. We've, we've removed the heretic, and, and so we're kind of done. Well, Leo the, Leo the tenth, that pope that excommunicated Luther, died that same year. And another pope, uh, Clement VII, who happened to be Leo's uh, cousin, was installed, and he was a really, really weak pope. And the pope was really involved in lots of geopolitical issues of that day. And he just didn't think the Reformation, this is true, he just didn't think the Reformation was a big deal. He didn't think these people were going to do anything. He thought we had already dealt with uh, Luther, and he had other big, he had bigger fish to fry, okay? Because the Germans and the French were at war with each other. Uh, you had this guy called Henry VIII in England who wanted to divorce his wife and was asking him if he could divorce his wife. All of this is happening in this time of this kind of weak-willed pope who was trying to please everybody. And so under his reign as a pope, in a couple of decades reign as a pope, uh, you end up with great war raging where the French are, are uh, staunch Catholics and now you've got all of these like reformer type people in Germany and that's not the only reason they're at war, but they go to war. Uh, you've got a king directly disobeying uh, the decree that he is legally married to a woman that he has now put away in divorce and ultimately England declaring that they're going to be their own church and that the king is now the head of what becomes the Anglican church, right? The church of England. Um, I mean, all of this mess takes place over the course of a couple of decades. And what the church doesn't do, what the Roman Catholic church doesn't do, is they don't deal with the spread of, they don't deal with the doctrine that's spreading of the Protestant Reformation. This ends up actually being a good thing for the Reformation. They just speaking historically, if they would have been really strong, not just with Luther, but had been really strong with clarifying some doctrinal positions, maybe it wouldn't have spread like it did. 
but you gave it, they gave it a couple of decades to, to spread from 1521 when they, um, 1521 when they excommunicated Luther until uh, 1537 when a new Pope, Paul III, backed by France, staunch French Catholics, demanding that a council, and a council is the highest meeting of Catholics, okay? Demanding that he call a council. And he calls a council in, um, in 1537. It actually doesn't open as a council until 1545. So we've got about 25 years. Think about that. 25 years of not just Luther now, but multiple reformers, not just in Germany, but also out of Switzerland and in other places in England now with the, with the, the Church of England. You got multiple reformers teaching multiple things that the church, the Catholic church didn't deal with for what amounts to really a whole generation until they finally get around to, and, and so much of this was political, they finally get around to in 1545 hosting the first of three stages of the Council of Trent. But it takes them 18 more years to eventually solve everything that they needed to solve the Council of Trent lasted for 18 years. Now, they didn't actually meet for 18 years. They met in three stages, several years inter interrupting each stage. But it's, the Council of Trent doesn't conclude until 1563. So, and you say, well, that's kind of, why, why does all that matter? It matters because four, it took 45 years for the Catholic Church to make an official statement of what Luther nailed to the door in 1517. And over the course of that 45 years, two generations of people, really, if a generation is 20 years, two generations of people. And the gospel at that point has spread like wildfire throughout Western Europe. And so you end up with the, these, these very long books written out of the Council of Trent, really, where the Catholics are trying their best to get a hold of what's going on. And, try, and so for the first time, um, in a very, very long time, uh, the Catholics set out at the end of Trent to say, no, this is what we believe. And some of uh, Catholic doctrine that is still held today was codified for the very first time in 1563 at the end of Council of Trent. Now, I don't have time to go into everything that was taught at the Council of Trent, every, every position that they had. But here's what's going to matter for, for our purposes. What comes out of Trent, actually, the Council of Trent, tells us what we really need to know about the Protestant Reformation and the five solas, all right? So lots of stuff gets codified and lots of stuff that's not necessarily germane to our discussion today, some of which the Catholics changed at future councils, even the one that took place in the 1900s called uh, the Vatican Council. Um, but there were some things that Trent codified, still held the day, and, and, it, and it speaks to uh, kind of what was happening in the Reformation. So here's, here's just a few of them. One of them was for the first time, uh, the Catholic Church said that the Latin Vulgate, which was the Latin version of the Bible that, that Catholic churches used all the way up until the 1970s in, in so for a very long time, that's what, that's what they used. These was known as the Latin Vulgate. That they said the Latin Vulgate was equal to the, the Greek and Hebrew texts of Scripture. And actually preferred over it. Because if, you, if all of your priests read Latin, which one are they going to read, right? They're, and so they said, they're, basically they're saying their version of this, their translated version of the Scripture was equal to the original writing, the original manuscripts, or the ancient manuscripts that we had that were found in Greek and Hebrew. They affirmed that scripture and, tradi and church tradition, so church dogma, church teachings, traditional teachings of the church, were authoritative. So this was the first time that this was actually affirmed. And people think, you know, sometimes we think Catholics have always believed what they've always believed. It wasn't true. It wasn't until the Council of Trent, that that is actually an official position of the church, that tradition is on equal weight of scripture. Now, why did they come out and say that? They came out and say that because the last 45 years, the reformers were saying scripture alone, scripture alone, scripture alone. So what did they say? They, they couldn't say scripture alone because their doctrine of justification was not based on scripture alone. So they had to say scripture and tradition. 
They also said, they also addressed faith alone. They said justification was by faith and works. A quote is that a person, this is from Trent, a person is justified by cooperating with divine grace that God bestows. Now, what does that word cooperate? We often think of the word cooperate. If we think of salvation in three tenses, past, present, and future, we often think of the present tense as us cooperating, and that's sanctification, right? That, we're, that we are cooperating with the Holy Spirit th- through obedience to be sanctified, to put off sin and to put on Christ, to become more and more into the image of Jesus. But that's not what they're addressing. That wasn't what they were addressing at Trent. What they were addressing at Trent was justification, that justification is cooperation. So that, that it's not faith alone, it is faith and works. Basically, where, where the Catholics left off at Trent was that, ju- that, that uh, people were justified, uh, that God justified people because they were sanctified, not the other way around. So again, we think of historically you know, Protestant um, uh, doctrine of justification and sanctification and glor- of salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification is in that order, right? Past tense, I was saved, my justification. I am being saved, my sanctification, and I will be saved, my glorification. That uh, coming out of Trent, what the, what the Roman Catholics do is they, they swap that. And they begin this process of sanctification that, that ultimately leads to a moment of justification, this, this cooperation. They said that justification is the sanctifying and renewing of the inner man. And to be justified, one must be baptized into the Catholic Church. And they didn't change that, by the way, until, until the 1900s. You must be baptized in the Catholic Church. And then as an adult, continue in faith that justification is kind of this continual process. The way that we think about sanctification, they're looking at justification. Meaning that there's never any assurance that one has ever been justified. That as long as sin is ever still present in your life, then there's no assurance of your justification. Because justification is this continual work that you're having to do um, as you cooperate then with the grace of God. Ultimately, what the question comes down to as we transition kind of the doctrinal piece of this is from where does our righteousness come? This, this really is, is the question, right? I said the big question of the Reformation was by what means are, are men saved? Does God justify you know, men and women, make them right with, with him? And really the only thing that makes us right with God is righteousness, it's the only way that you can be right with God is for God to look at you and see righteousness. The only way I can be right with God is for God to look at me and see righteousness. And so that really becomes the, the big question is where do we get that righteousness from? Do we, one, the, what the reformers were saying, and that is what's known as imputation, that our righteousness is, is imputed, it's given to us. It's taken from someone else and given to us. Or is it, is it infused within us? Is it something that, that, it, that it, it, through varied degrees, we kind of grow in that righteousness, ultimately becoming right with God? This is the, and there, look, there, there are any number of peripheral things, any number of peripheral things. I mean, pre-Reformation, you could literally buy salvation, and I'm not making this up. You could literally buy salvation from the Catholic Church. They actually got rid of that, um, but, but it was possible. Like you could pay enough money. You could pay enough money to get people out of purgatory. I mean, you, you, could, you could buy it if you wanted it, okay? Um, so it wasn't only you could earn it through good works. You could also earn it with, with knowing the right people or, or giving the right amount of money. But this is what the question comes down to is, is what is it that's justifying us? So this is the doctrine that I want us to consider for the rest of our time is what does it actually mean to be justified? And what is our position on that? So if this idea is new to you, and want to think about that, what does it actually mean for us to be justified? So let me de- define the term for you. This is, um, I think we still have this book in the Equip Center. We have a book out there called Bible Doctrine. 
It's a, a white book written by Wayne Grudem. And he has, he has some real, it's one of the things I love about that book is his definitions. I think he provides better definitions than most systematic theology books. And this is his definition. Justification is an instantaneous act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's sins as belonging to, uh, uh, Christ's righteousness, not his sins, sorry. Um, so let me start over. Justification is an instantaneous act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us and declares us to be righteous in his sight. Justification is a legal declaration of God made because of a, what Luther called a great exchange. Luther coined the term great exchange that God takes from us that which is terrible and gives to us that which is wonderful, right? And again, it's just an exchange. So that which is terrible is placed on Jesus on the cross, right? And what was given to us was, that was wonderful was taken from Jesus, his righteousness. So this is, this is the doctrine of imputation, imparted righteous, imputed righteousness, that, that, it's, that we, we exchange our wickedness for the righteousness of Jesus. And that this is an instantaneous act of God. It's not something that we do. It's something that God does. And when he does that, he then, in a legal sense, right? And the New Testament, as it, as it talks about this subject, so often uses legal terms. The, the term justification is actually a, a Greek legal term that means to be declared right. It's a, it's a term a judge would make. And so God looks at you and gives to you the righteousness of, G of Christ, takes from you the, your sin, and then legally declares you to be righteous in his sight, that this is what justification is. Now, what's our biblical basis for making this claim? Well, much of the biblical basis for this claim comes from the writings of Paul. It doesn't exclusively come from the writings of Paul. There's, there's gospel um, examples of this. There's even Old Testament examples of this. And Paul actually leans on one of those Old Testament examples in his writings. So I think it's helpful for us actually to look at that first because we can see how this has always been the way that God saves people, whether them looking forward to the fulfillment of the promise of God in Jesus or us looking back. Uh, opponent. So in Romans chapter four, Paul writes this, starting at the beginning of that chapter. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? So Paul starts off by asking a question. Does Paul gain, does Abraham gain anything by the good things that he did? And if you know anything about Abraham's life, I preached on Abraham's life last year, uh, if you know anything about Abraham's life, Abraham did some good things. Abraham also did some bad things, right? Like directly disobedient to God on, in multiple times of his life. God said, don't go to Egypt. Abraham went to Egypt. God said, I'll provide for you a child. Abraham tried to make his own way uh, and, and provide a child for himself, right? But there were also moments of, of obedience or moments of sacrifice. There were moments, Abraham obeyed God, listened to God, left his homeland and went to, went to the promised land, the land that God would show up. So if we just look at the good works of the flesh, what is it that Abraham gained, right? Verse two, for if Abraham was justified, so there's that word, right? If he was made righteous by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, all right? So leaning on Old Testament scripture, leaning on Genesis, where Abraham, where God spoke a promise to Abraham, Abraham believed that promise and that belief was credited him as righteousness. Paul says, if Abraham was, was righteous because of things he did, he could boast. But he's not righteous because of the things that he did. And even scripture tells us he's not righteous by things that he did. He's righteous because he believed God. And so he doesn't have anything to boast about. God is the one who is the author of Abraham's faith, right? Abraham believed God and was counted as righteousness. Verse four, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. 
And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, Romans chapter 4, verse 5 is, I think, the, the greatest, and I wanted to, to teach it in context. I want to provide, the, provide it for you in context or the context of Abraham. But I think it's probably the greatest scriptural proof for um, justification as the Protestant reformer, as the reformers understood it and as we understand it today. So let me read it again. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. All right? So it's not about my cooperation with the grace of God, because to the one who does not work, but believes. And what happens to him who does not work, but believes? He is what? Justified. And what is he before he is justified? In him who justifies the ungodly. So justification can't, based on Romans 4, 5, justification can't follow sanctification. It can't be that we cooperate with God in such a way that it ultimately leads to righteousness that God then declares that we're righteous. Who is it that God declares righteous? God declares righteous the ungodly. So there's, there's no work of man that leads to the point of us being justified. It is a work of God alone that leads to our justification. The ungodly certainly can't justify themselves. So it's righteousness. So then where does that righteousness come from? So then we go to Romans 6, right? Paul's still in the same argument. This is kind of the whole argument of the first eight chapters of Romans anyway, where does our salvation come from? Who can save himself, right? And then what's the reality of that salvation? So we get to Romans 6, Paul says this, sorry, in verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the thing of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So you notice Paul deals with sanctification here and fruit in our life. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. That sanctification is this ongoing process of the fruit of our lives. And at the end of all of that is glorification, is that future tense view of salvation. I will one day know full salvation in Jesus, perfect body, sinless life. I will live and reign with him forever, right? But then Paul looks back in verse 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That it's, it's a free gift. It's not something anybody earns. It's not something anybody works for. So here in just these couple little verses in Romans 6, Paul deals with all three tenses of salvation, past, present, and future. He deals with justification, sanctification, and glorification. He actually deals with sanctification and glorification and then looks back and says, you were dead, right? For the wages of sin is death. This is who you were, but God gave you. God did a work that was free for you. God is the one who declares us to be legally right. That's the first part of that, right? That first part of that definition. It's an instantaneous act of God whereby he thinks that our sins are forgiven and Christ's righteousness belongs to us and declares us right in his sight that this is something that God does. That he, he looks at us and does not see our sin, not because of anything that we did, but because of something that he is doing. So then because of that, we no longer have a penalty to pay for sin at all, past or present or future. This is ultimately what Paul's argument is this theological treatise of Romans 1 through 7 ends up with a, if, you, if you're, you know, for those of you that are familiar, most of you are, the way that I preach on Sunday mornings, right? Romans 8 really is kind of the so what to Romans 1 through 7. And how does Romans 8 start, right? There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, 
This is the, this is the, the final claim that Paul makes after laying out this, this broad picture of, all right, who needs salvation? Everybody needs salvation. Who can save themselves? Nobody can save themselves. How is it that somebody can be saved? They can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone, right? Paul lays all of this out and then he gets to Romans 8 and he's like, now there's no condemnation for those people. That's called assurance, right? Now again, if justification is this thing that we're regularly working for, and God is yet to declare us to be righteous in his sight, which is what was codified at the Council of Trent into Catholic dogma. If that's the case, if that's true, then Romans 8.1 can't also be true because it's in the present tense. He's not talking about a day in the future. Paul's talking about now. There is therefore when? Now, right now. No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So if you are in Christ Jesus now, that means you have already been declared right. Think about what condemnation is, right? Condemnation is the sentencing of a prisoner, right? You're condemned to die. You're condemned to prison. Like that's what a judge does to a convict, right? And Paul looks at us so much legal language in these first eight chapters of Romans. Paul looks at us and says, we're on trial before God. We can't do anything about our sins on our own, but Jesus does it for us. We deserve death, right? The wages of sin is death. Free gift of God is eternal life. But we're now justified. We're made righteous and there's now no condemnation. And it's not future tense. He doesn't say there will one day be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He says there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's present tense. It's, it's what's happening now. He ends that. He goes on, right? And by the time you get to the end of that chapter, in verse 33 and 34, he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So this is the conclusion that Paul comes to, Right? He doesn't, come to, he doesn't only say there is now no con condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He says there's not even anybody that can make an accusation against them. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Because why? He asks this, this is a rhetorical question, right? He's like, is there anybody more powerful than God? No, certainly there's not anybody more powerful than God. And it is God who, this is the, the end of verse 33, so important. It is God who justifies. If it were up to me to justify myself before God, first off, I would do a terrible job at it. But if it were up to me to justify myself before God, then any of you could make accusations before God about my justification. Satan could make accusations about me before God about my justification. But because it is God who justifies and not me who justifies, then Paul asks that question in 34. Who is to condemn? <laughs> Because I didn't justify myself, you didn't justify me as he justifies sinners. So to be, do you, so just think about it in legal terms, because so much of this, again, is in legal terms, and our minds understand that, right? We've, we've watched trials on TV, whether real trials or, you know, fake trials on, you know, TV or whatever. So we, we all kind of have an understanding of the way this works. And you know there's a difference, right, between being acquitted and being actually proven innocent. You know, courtrooms don't actually prove people innocent, right? Nobody's declared to be innocent in a courtroom. The best you can get out of a modern courtroom is to be acquitted, to be declared but not guilty. It means they didn't prove their case against you, right? You know, you're not, in American law at least, you're not supposed to have to prove your innocence. Somebody else is supposed to have to prove your guilt, right? And so when we think about forgiveness, that's often the way that the context that we think about it. We think about our forgiveness, our justification in terms of acquittal, that Jesus did something that forgave my sins. And yes, Jesus did something that forgave your sins. That's important. I'm not saying it didn't happen. It did. But there's something else that's far greater than that. Because to be forgiven is to be made neutral, right? So when somebody is acquitted of the charges, right? That person walks out 
of the court. They're not prized by the court. The court's not saying anything good about them at all. I mean, we've all watched it in my lifetime. I've watched numerous people that we were all pretty sure did it, that were acquitted of what they did, right? That didn't make make them right. It didn't it just means there wasn't enough evidence, right? So they, they were acquitted. And forgiveness is kind of that way. It makes us neutral standing before God. But justification goes beyond, far beyond just neutrality. Justification means that we go from being morally neutral to having a positive righteousness. This is why imputation is so important, that God doesn't just forgive your sins, but he takes the righteousness of the only righteous person to ever lives and gives it to you. Paul writes in Romans chapter three, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. This is in verse 21 of Romans three. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. So who is the righteousness of God? The righteousness of God is personified in Jesus. He says, not in the law, not in the prophets, even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God is personified in Jesus Christ. And then he says, the righteousness of God, he uses that same phrase a second time, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, meaning this, that all who believe in Jesus, those who are justified, aren't just forgiven of their sins. You're not just made neutral to go and sin no more. You're actually given then the righteousness of Christ. So when God looks at you, he doesn't see a neutral party. He sees an entirely righteous party. That is completely different than just saying our sins are forgiven. It's a great thing to have our sins forgiven. It is a wholly greater thing to have our sins forgiven and to be given perfect righteousness. Position, this is known as positional righteousness. Meaning the way that our standing with God is forever changed because of the righteousness of Jesus applied to our lives. So God then declares us to be just because he imputes, puts in Christ's righteousness into our lives. And you say, is this the pattern of scripture? Sure, certainly it's the pattern of scripture because it's how we get our sin nature. Adam's sin was imputed to us, right? Sin is passed from one generation to the next. What is it that, that Paul says? By, by one man, all have sinned, right? And by one man, all have been declared righteous, right? So by, we, we, already, we believe in imputation if we believe in the idea of, of a sin nature because Adam's sin is passed to us. And then our sin is imputed to Christ. We say this all the time, right? Jesus died, our sin was placed on him on the cross so that our sin in, in that age past was placed on Jesus on the cross. And now when we're saved, when we come to saving faith in Jesus, by the work of God, Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. So justification does not change us internally and it's not declared based on any good that we've done externally but justification is a whole work of God that changes our position before him we could never be declared perfectly righteous in this life based on our own works so this is the thing we need to understand about sanctification is that, that, that the idea of saying, think about it like you know, a stock chart. Goes up some, goes down some, goes up some, goes down some. Hopefully there's, a, there's a, you know, a trajectory. But the trajectory is you'll, you'll never actually get there. I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord, you're never going to, you're never going to, get, you're never going to achieve perfect Christ-likeness in this life because the sin nature always remains. But the way that the position that we have in God, going back to that moment of justification, is perfect holy righteousness, not based on anything that we have done, but based on who, what Jesus has done. So then we get to have the confidence that Paul has in Romans 5. He says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, if salvation, if justification 
is earned by something that we do, then we have no hope of assurance. Maybe we get there, maybe we don't. But Paul seems to make some definitive claims in Scripture of 100% assurance. Since we have been, past tense, justified by faith, we then have peace with God, present and future tense. We have, right now, peace with God. So here's the great news today, Christian. If your faith is in Jesus, then you have been declared righteous. You've not only been forgiven of your sin, but you have been imparted righteousness, imputed righteousness from Christ, given to you, placed into your life, and you will never be more justified than you are right now. And you'll never be less justified than you are right now. Will you be more or less sanctified? Sure. That is the ongoing process of putting off sin and putting on Christ. But you will always be the amount of justified that you are right now because you have been given the righteousness of Christ and your sin has been placed on him and God has declared you to be right in his sight. Now, how we got to that as the church is what we're going to see over the next 10 weeks as we look at these subjects, these solas, these alones together. So I hope this kind of build that foundation for you as we start to approach those subjects in the next couple of weeks. Let me pray and we'll be done. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you that we can celebrate together. Not my righteousness, but Christ's. Thank you, God, that when you look on me, even though what I still see is a long way to go into becoming like Jesus, you see Jesus. Because of that work that you've done in my life and that you've done in the lives of so many present, we stand right before you. Thank you for that truth. Let us declare that truth to a world that needs to hear it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, thank you so much for being here. We look forward to uh, seeing you next Wednesday. Those that are home, hope we get to see you again in person soon.